Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, this is episode 322 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300. Uh, I'm here today with uh, co-host uh, Sarah Archer. Uh, Hannah LaRue couldn't be with us today, but... Uh, She'll be back with us uh, next week. Uh, we do have a fun lineup for you today on the episode. Uh, Sarah, kick us off. Yeah, we're going to start off with an author feature with Mimi Herman and her novel The Kudzu Queen, which North Carolina poet laureate Jackie Shelton Green calls absorbing, nuanced, and as layered as the characters who inhabit it. And New York Times uh, bestselling novelist Lee Smith says the novel has the most appealing young heroine since Scout. This book demands to be a movie. Yeah, next we have a two-minute tip from Charlotte by Paul Reale. It's part of the uh, series this month on uh, scenes. Uh, this is part two, using point of view in scenes. We're also going to have a writing topic discussion with Mary Salisbury's blog post, uh, How the Love of Reading Can Lead to Publication. She is the author of Side Effects of Wanting. Yeah, and we'll wrap up today with uh, reading recommendations, uh, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. But as always, first we start out with uh, what's up with the host. Uh, and uh, we're recording this uh, early uh, January, but uh, pretend like it's around January 17th, Sarah, and tell us what's okay. up. <laughs> so let's see, January 17th. Well, on the 18th, I'm going to be doing a talk with uh, Writers Beyond Borders, which is a group that meets through the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library System on Zoom. I'm going to be talking about screenwriting and a little bit of an overview of kind of Maybe you're a writer who writes fiction or nonfiction, but you have an interest in screenwriting. What might be fun about it for you to try and how you can sort of get your feet wet with that. Um, you can register through the library system's website if you're interested. It's free and it's online, so anyone can join. Um, I've also been working on some poetry lately. Um, I got into this ecrastic exhibit that the Charlotte Art League is going to be putting together in March. So I'm working on a poem for that, which is kind of a fun challenge. They give you a work of art by a local artist and you have to write something inspired by it. So I'm, I'm trying to read some poetry lately and kind of get my creative juices flowing for that. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully, um, we'll be honing in on, um, uh, the final cover for the first book in the right quote series, uh, and uh, wrapping it up so we can get it up for pre-order at the end of the month. And uh, that'll be part of an eight-book series we're doing uh, on the podcast from the first four years. It'll be uh, authors speaking in their own voices. And I like to say that, uh, you know, we had this tagline for the podcast where authors give voice to the written words. We're kind of flipping the script here. This is where uh, authors give text to their spoken words. So we're going to put that mm -hmm. out there and have fun uh, with that. So that's going on. So, uh yeah, um, it's uh, 
it's wish, wish Hannah was here with us today and could catch us up. But uh, we know she's busy probably with with young Gwen and getting back into the swing of things in her publicity life and catching up on reading and that kind of thing. But uh, we'll uh, we'll hear more from her uh, in the next episode. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so let's uh, let's dive into Act One. Before we do that, uh, let's hear from our uh, friends at Libro. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, our author feature today is um, with author Mimi Herman. Um, I love the title of this book, The Kudzu Queen, and uh, uh, I know, Sarah, that you read it and you interviewed her. I've got that on my reading list too because I listened to the interview and uh, mm-hmm. I really liked uh, what I was hearing but tell us uh, a little bit about uh, Mimi yeah it's a great book I think you'll enjoy it and if you've grown up in the south around kudzu it'll make you look at kudzu in a whole new way so <laughs> I look at, I look at kudzu in a whole new way anyway as I'm riding down the whole yeah. highway 74 to the beach it's all over the sides it's of the everywhere. roads yeah Oh, yeah. Oh, it'll teach you all about the the healing properties of kudzu. It's amazing. (laughs) So uh, Mimi Herman grew up in Raleigh and Chapel Hill. She graduated from UNC Chapel Hill with honors in creative writing. Later, she got her master's um, from Warren Wilson and served as the North Carolina Piedmont Laureate. She's lived elsewhere for brief periods from California to Ireland, but she's always returned home here to North Carolina for pine trees, sweet tea, and old friends. And her decades of work as a North Carolina writer in the schools have changed the lives of tens of thousands of young people and their teachers and given her a deep understanding of her rural neighbors of all ages in nearly all the state's counties. She's had two previous books of poetry published, um, but this is her debut novel. Um, It's got a plucky young protagonist, Maddie Lee Wilson, who's been compared to Scout and To Kill a Mockingbird. It also has this other, I won't necessarily say antagonist, but an interesting character named James T. Cullaway, who who is the self-proclaimed Kudzu King. Um, He arrives in 15-year-old Maddie's hometown in Cooper County, North Carolina in 1941 to spread the gospel of kudzu, claiming that it will improve the soil, feed cattle at almost no cost, and even cure headaches. And as he sets out to sell Cooper County on the future of kudzu, organizing a countywide festival capped off by the crowning of the Kudzu Queen, Maddie sets her sights on winning both the crown and Cullaway. And there's been a lot of really great reviews and blurbs for this novel, David Sedaris says, funny, sad, and tender. Mimi Herman has written a novel that possesses a true and hard-won understanding of the South. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. I love the title. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the Kudzu Queen. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can just envision this uh, little you know, festival where they're they're running for this uh, the honor. Kudzu you know, pageant. <laughs> I mean, wonder what they get. What do they put on their head when they win the the Kudzu? Queen crown is it? A, I believe it's like a an emerald crown. Okay, it's not. Jewels, it's not laced, uh, draped with kudzu or anything. Or it could be <laughs> a okay. sash made out of kudzu. Yeah. Some Greek revival. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's do this. Let's uh, let's play the interview now and um, and listen in on on what uh, Mimi shared with you about the kudzu queen. So I'm so happy to have uh, Mimi Herman coming to the podcast here today to talk about the Kudzu Queen. Mimi, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, thanks. So this is your debut novel, and it's coming out soon on January 10th. Is that right? Um, yes, it is. Okay. So about a month from right now when we're recording, um, how has the launch been going? How are you feeling about it? Oh, I'm really excited. I'm going to be 
having my launch party and reading at Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh. And I've got lots of bookstores lined up and just lots of people coming and planning a big cake. And it's just incredibly exciting. Oh, nice. That is so exciting. Um, and I actually, I, I kind of take from the book that you are a cook or a baker. There's a lot of wonderful descriptions of food in there. Are you making the cake yourself? I would love to make the cake myself, but I think I'm going to be too nervous. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to let somebody else make the cake for me. Uh, but you're right. It's funny. I went through the book um, just for fun and counted all the foods in there. And there were hundreds of different foods in there. I had no idea when I was writing it that it was all about food. I, I, think I, I love that, though. Thanks. It's because it's such a um, it's a great way of kind of bringing to life the culture and the characters and it's food that feels specific to the time and place of the story. So to me, I thought it really added something and just kind of brought it all to life. So I enjoyed that. Thanks. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, doing a companion cookbook. Oh, nice. I'll I'll stay tuned for that for sure. Kudzu jelly, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so speaking of the kudzu jelly, um, so I grew up in North Carolina, so I'm familiar with kudzu. I think of it as a weed, which I think is how most people see it. You know, it's this invasive species that kind of came in and took over everything. But in this book, when it's new to the characters, um, it's a novelty and they see it as this miracle plant. And they're they're told like, oh, you can, you can jelly it, you can eat it, you can smoke it. It's got medicinal properties. Um, the government is actually paying people to plant it. So I was curious how much of that is true and, and what kind of research did you do when writing this? Every bit of it is true. Um, in fact, wow. I've got some kudzu jelly in my house and I'm ordering some more. Um, you can make baskets out of it. You can make flour out of it. Um, you can feed your animals uh, with kudzu. Um, and it was intentionally introduced in this country. It was originally an ornamental um, in the World's Fair. And then um, the government actually paid people to plant it, paid um, young men to plant it along railway embankments um, to help prevent, help prevent erosion. Uh, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I would never have guessed. <laughs> I'm going to think differently every time I drive by a whole field full of cuts, you know. It's funny. I mean, it has no natural enemies, so it takes over. I, mm-hmm. I'm told that um, it makes a lousy biofuel, but a, but a great beer. Interesting. Kudzu beer. We'll have to think yeah. about that. <laughs> lots of research, and it was lots of fun. I'm kind of a research geek. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it shows in this book. It feels very real, um, and the history feels real. And another thing that was a real joy for me in reading this was the language and how well you capture kind of the Southern dialect of the area. Um, I pulled out some of the phrases that I loved, like heavy as homegrown sin or lazy as a cream fed cat, (laughs) all sorts of wonderful Southern sounding expressions. Did you invent most of the language or were you pulling from kind of real phrases that you heard? Those two I invented, actually. Um, Some of it was stuff I heard. Um, I love to listen to people. I'm kind of a chameleon. When I go to New York, I sound like a New Yorker. When I lived in Ireland, I sounded Irish. Um, But I grew up in the South. And so that voice, those voices, because there's so many different voices, even in North Carolina, they're kind of Mm -hmm. in my veins. Yeah, that really shows in the book. Um, I loved that part of it. And another thing that was interesting to me was this idea of kudzu as this plant that is, you know, professed to be a miracle plant. Um, and then it comes in and becomes an invasive weed. It feels very ripe for symbolism and allegory, and there's a lot that you could read into that. Um, and also the color green, I noticed, showed up a lot in the book, not just in the kudzu itself, but in a lot of other places. Okay. I was wondering, was there any sort of intentional symbolism or allegory behind the writing there? You know, it's funny, but there wasn't. Um, I'm, I'm a writer who hates to write for symbolism, but, you know, of course it always creeps into your writing whether you mean it to or not. Uh, I didn't mean it to, but looking back on it now, I can really see it. 
Yeah, yeah. I felt like it was um, it was definitely there, but it was open ended. Like you weren't guiding the reader in a certain direction. But I think if you want to take it as meaning all sorts of different things, you could, which was was really interesting to me. Um, another thing that I loved in reading this was kind of how you develop the tension, because you know most of us as modern readers we know that kudzu is nowadays perceived kind of as an invasive species, but it's definitely perceived differently in the story in the beginning. So you're wondering how that's going to develop for the characters with the kind of dramatic irony there. Um, also, the the protagonist Maddie, when it's the book starts out, she has feelings for this older man, mm-hmm. the kudzu king James Cullowy, um, and it starts kind of sweet and innocent, and then develops in different ways as the story goes on. There's also this event of the kudzu queen pageant that you're building towards, so you got a lot of kind of threads in place that we're wondering how is this going to play out. Do you have any tips for writers on how to build tension and suspense in a novel? Don't know what's going to happen next as you're writing it. Um, I write for the same reason I read, to see what's going to happen. And the other thing that kept happening as I wrote the book is that people kept inventing other people. So, you know, Maddie came along and she invented her family and they all had their own issues. And then she invented a best friend and her best friend Lynette's family. And, of course, there had to be the mean girl, um, Mm -hmm. Linus. And so everybody brings their own issues into the book and and if you kind of listen to your characters and follow them around they're going to create their own tension yeah that's that's so true it all comes out of the characters there and I love that it sounds like they were kind of talking to you and telling you their own story as you went along oh yeah Maddie's a little bossy so you know that's why she had to narrate the book I can I can see that. I can see that from her. <laughs> and speaking of Maddie, so um, she's 15 in the book. And to me, she was very believable, a very well-drawn character. Um, how did you put yourself as an adult in the mindset of this teenage protagonist? Was there any of your younger self in Maddie? That's a great question, Sarah. I don't write autobiographically in my fiction. Um, so the stuff about Katsu is really true. But Maddie is completely different from the way that I was as a 15-year-old, except there's this one quality that I think girls about that age sometimes have and that I definitely had as a 15 year old, which is this, this sense of their own sensuality and this way of trying to trying it on for size um, without knowing how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And that was really me and it got me into trouble at 15. And so the only thing about Maddie that's from me is that element. And yeah, I think you, you captured that really well. It felt very believable for her age, the kind of that that in between where you're still a kid, but you're not really a kid anymore and how mm-hmm. that's playing out and her confusion, but her, her bravery at the same time. And it, it just all came together really well, I think. Um, and also with her being a younger character, I always find it interesting when there are books that are for adults, but that have a protagonist who's a child or a teenager. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's kind of a fine line between that versus like a YA or a middle grade book. Um, And to me, this read much more like something that's intended for adults. How did you kind of draw that line in your writing between, you know, writing about a younger protagonist, but making it for an adult audience? It's another good question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I, I always intended this for an adult audience and it wasn't until it was written and revised that I started thinking that, you know, even though there's a a lot of really troubling stuff in the book, there's a lot of troubling stuff in a lot of YA books. And so that Mm -hmm. this felt like a crossover book to me. I think, I think of people as being like trees that were all these different layers 
And so inside of each of us is a 15-year-old and a 5-year-old and a 2-year-old and a you know, 17-year-old, whatever. So we're all of these different ages. And I wanted the book to speak to the 15-year-old in adults. I think that's such a transformative time and a time when you're experimenting and trying things on for size and there's so much bravado and so much lack of confidence all kind of clashing together at the same time. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a beautiful way of putting that. Um, I have a few more questions I'd like to get into kind of about your writing life. But first, mm-hmm. would you have um, a passage you could share with us from the book? I would love to. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to read a little into the book, not at the very beginning, but uh, it's a scene where where the Kudzu King comes to talk to Maddie's high school. And so it gives you a sense of him and also of what's going to happen in the book. I thought that would be a good scene to read. So here we go. Sure, that sounds great. Usually in assemblies, the principal had to hush everyone as best he could and hand over the unstable quiet to the speaker like a poorly wrapped present. That day, as soon as we saw the Kudzu King alone on the stage, everyone stopped talking. He stood in front of the microphone, gazing out as if we were his loyal subjects. What was he waiting for? A late arriving class, an introduction? The principal had already taken a seat in the front row along with the secretary and cafeteria ladies. Even Mr. Sykes, a custodian, sat there. I'd never seen Mr. Sykes sit down. I'd thought we were unusually quiet before, but as we waited, the hum I hadn't noticed died out, leaving us completely still. Into that stillness, the Kudzu King spoke. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you your future. His voice boomed through the speakers. No one breathed. One small and powerful plant is going to rule the South in years to come, and you, my friends, will be its kings and queens. The breath we've been holding flew out as a collective sigh. You, the future of the South, will lead this region to the greatness it deserves. Here was this man saying that we, pimple-faced, too pudgy or too tall, voices breaking or shrill, were the future. I've heard tell, his voice deepened, that cotton is king. Well, my friends, the day of cotton is over. The day of kudzu has dawned. Anything cotton can do, kudzu can do better. It wears longer than cotton and weaves finer than the finest flax linen. Can you eat cotton? Can it cure a sick headache? Can you put it in your pipe and smoke it? A laugh blurted out of some of the boys. The king is dead, Mr. Cullowey said. Long live the king. This was the future, and here was the man to lead us to it. This week will begin classes for any girl interested in entering the Kudzu Queen competition, culminating in the crowning of your very own queen on the 14th of June. Every young lady in this auditorium, I like how he called it an auditorium instead of the gym it was, is invited to attend these classes Wednesday afternoons at 3.15 free of charge with bus service to your homes afterward. I'll expect to see you Wednesday at the mayor's home where he and his wife have generously offered to accommodate all who join us. He paused and looked around. Now, boys, don't you go feeling left out. You, too, will have the opportunity to engage in extracurricular higher education. Each and every Thursday afternoon, we'll meet at the farm of Mr. Leroy Johnson, where you'll learn the latest advances in kudzu farming. 
I hope to see as many of you as can be spared from chores for a few hours each week. He stepped back. I thank you for your time, and I thank your principal, Mr. Lassiter, for the opportunity to speak to you. I look forward to seeing you all this week. We applauded as if to bring down the bleachers, clapping until our hands hurt. We were ready to dress in kudzu, eat it, and hand it out as Christmas presents. We only hoped there'd be enough to go around. That was wonderful. Thank you. What a salesman. I'm, I'm ready to dress in kudzu too. <laughs> I'm there. I'm okay. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit more about your kind of bigger picture life and identity as a writer. Um, I know that this is your first published novel, but you have two poetry collections out, I believe. Um, a Field Guide to Human Emotions and Logophilia. So for you as a writer, what's the relationship between your fiction writing and your poetry writing? What's well, funny, I went to Warren Wilson for my MFA, and um, at that time when I went, everybody wrote short stories for their MFAs. Nobody wrote novels, you know, short stories or poetry. And my degree was mm -hmm. in fiction, so I wrote short stories. I hate writing short stories. I'm not a short story <laughs> writer. To me, short stories are sort of somehow related to jokes. They have kind of the timing of jokes, and I'm the world's worst joke teller. I'm the sort of person that um, gets to the end and realizes I forgot to tell you something essential for you to get the punchline. Um, so to me, novels are kind of expanded poems and poems are kind of condensed novels. They kind of work the same way. Um, mm -hmm. so they also, um, feed different parts of me. So when I'm trying to understand an emotion or a concept or a moment, I'm going to go to poetry. And when I want to really dwell in characters and community, I go to novels. Yeah, I, I understand that too. I write um, different genres and different media. So I, yeah. I totally understand that need to kind of tap into different parts of yourself with different media. Um, I think that's wonderful. And so I know you mentioned that you uh, went to Warren Wilson. I think you got your MFA there. Is mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think you also study creative writing at UNC. Um, you're also co-director of the Writer Ways Writing Workshops. Mm -hmm. And we love to talk about kind of writing community on this show. So I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the Writer Ways Workshops and then also more broadly, kind of how you define your writing community and how other writers feed into your life as a writer? Oh, I love that. Yeah, so Writer Ways are writing workshops that my partner, John Yule, and I started a decade ago. Um, we started doing ones um, at a chateau in France in the Loire Valley, um, and then we expanded to Bill's in Italy, and now we're also in New Mexico and soon to be in Ireland. And during um, most of the pandemic, we've been online as well. And they're all about community. It's really about creating a writing community um, where everybody's trying to help everybody else's writing be what it wants to be when it grows up. That's our goal. And so I love that sense of community. And I also have a great deep sense of community with my Warren Wilson friends, not just the people I went to school with, but we like the program so much that we invented an annual conference. So there's many people I've met since that have become very close friends. Uh, and then there's John, my partner, who is my best reader and editor. And we spend way too much time talking about writing. We should probably talk <laughs> about other things, but it's a great conversation topic. Yeah, I love that. It's It seems like anytime writers get together, and we see this on the show all the time, it, you can't stop talking about writing. And a lot of the same topics come up again, like rejection and how you deal with that. Oh. And 
how do you take notes? And we, we get into some of those same conversations, but everyone has a different take on them. So, um, yeah, talking to other writers and, and it just kind of feeds your writer soul. I think having that camaraderie. It does. And, and I'm really excited because this evening I'm going to get to hear Cully Holderfield read from his book. He's launching his book. And I know that he's also going to be on your show and Mm -hmm. he's a good friend. And uh, this book, Hemlock Hollow is one that I edited before we even started doing right away. So I'm just so impressed with what Cully's done and love knowing him um, as a friend, as a right away person and as a writer, I admire deeply. Yeah, it's funny. We actually just yesterday recorded the episode that we're featuring Cully's book in, um, and he mentioned that you had had worked on that book with him too. So it's a nice bit of synergy there. Um, but yeah, we're we're so excited to have both him and you on the show together and in uh, close time together, which has worked out nicely. Um, so going back to the book a little bit, some of the blurbs here, and you've got some wonderful blurbs on this book from authors like David Sedaris and Jill McCorkle and Lee Smith. Um, and in a couple of places, I saw people comparing Maddie to Scout Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird, which I think is, um, that's an apt comparison. Do you have any other Southern books or writers who inspire you? Um, I studied with Doris Betts and Max Steele when I was at Chapel Hill, the University of North Carolina, and they have always inspired me, both as teachers and as writers. I just love their work. Um, somebody else who's not a Southern writer, but who I think sort of feed, fed into this book is uh, Alice Monroe because she wrote about adolescence, writes about adolescence so beautifully. And so honestly, there's probably a better way to say it. She writes about adolescence in a way that shows that she understands adolescence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's wonderful too, one of the all-time greats. Yeah. Um, so I love to talk about writers processes with them and get into kind of the nuts and bolts. So what does a typical writing session look like for you? Like, do you write on a computer, on a notebook? Is there a time of day? Is there a place? Are you drinking tea or coffee? Like (laughs) (laughs) kind of how do you, how do you actually do your writing? Oh, I love that. Um, Yeah. So I write fast. Um, What I try to do is set aside writing weeks when I'm doing nothing else but writing and park the car around the corner. Okay. Maybe not literally, but metaphorically <laughs> and um, try to not do anything but write. And what I generally do, if I'm writing poetry, I set a goal of 10 poems a day. If I'm writing fiction, I set a goal of 10 pages a day and just write through. Um, I'm more of a winger than a planner. So what I tend to do when I'm starting something new as I am now um, starting a book set in Ireland and but. 1985, I tend to write lots of different pieces to write my way toward the book. And then after a while, they start to accumulate as a story. And then I can figure out where I need to write the other pieces. Uh, Originally, um, for years and years and years, I would do everything on legal pads. And so I I have boxes and boxes of legal pads of first drafts, um, because there was something about having, having the story come out through my hand. Mm-hmm. And onto the page through a pen. I love pens. I love great pens. That was really wonderful. But a novel's an unwieldy beast. And uh, there's a lot to be said for writing your first drafts on a computer, which I finally started doing. Actually, that's not yeah. strictly true. This new book, I started again by hand to kind of find my way to it. But when I get deeply into it, it'll be on the computer. And, and definitely lots library. of tea. 
<laughs> Lots of tea. Tea is good. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that your new novel is set in Ireland. And I, I think you said that some of the Rideaways workshops you've been to yeah. Ireland too. Have you been able to kind of do on the ground research there as you're starting that process? We've got, we haven't done one there yet, but when I graduated college, after I studied with Doris Betts and Max Steele and Daphne Athas and Lan Simpson, I went to live in Ireland for a year. Um, partly to prove to myself that I could do it, that I could go to a place where I didn't know anybody and and find a job and a place to live and, and make it on my own. Uh, and it was a really interesting year. Um, toward the end of the year, I took a solo cycle trip around the southern coast and up to Galway, uh, which is really one of my favorite places on the planet. So that was around 1985. And it really stuck with me because it's such an interesting time in Ireland. Um, it was 85, but it could have been the 1950s in America. It was before the tech revolution and people were so kind and generous when they had no money. Uh, and at the same time, the music scene, both the traditional music and the you know, clubs, the music scene was just amazing. So I wanted to get all of that in there. Plus there was a lot going on politically and it's just a really interesting time to be writing about. Wow, that does sound amazing. I'm I'm excited for your next book now. So no pressure, but I'm ready. <laughs> okay, I'll get I'll get a straight to work on that. <laughs> get to that. <laughs> so uh, one last question today. Um, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to yourself as a younger writer, what would what would you want to tell yourself? I would say, trust your writing, and revise like hell. Good words. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mimi, and thank you for sharing the Kudzu Queen with us. It's a wonderful book. I definitely recommend that everyone go out and enjoy it for themselves. And we look forward to having you back on the podcast in the future. Thanks, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, we're in act two, uh, our writing topics, uh, and we'll start off today with uh, Charlotte's two-minute tip. Uh, this is uh, by Paul Reality, uh, part two of the series on scenes. This is how to use point of view in scenes. So let's, let's listen in. This tip is part of a series about writing good scenes. Scenes are the building blocks of stories, novels, memoirs, films, and plays, and writing scenes contains a variety of skills. For today's tip, I want to talk about point of view in scenes, specifically how the point of view affects how you write the scene. First, a quick reminder, the point of view character is the one whose head we are in during a scene. In most modern stories, there is only one POV character at a time. We don't head hop from the thoughts of one to another within a scene. Now, here's the heart of this tip. Everything that happens in a scene is filtered through the lens of the POV character. None of what you're writing should be neutral. Your characters in the story world are alive. They have moods, memories, flaws, needs, insecurities, ambitions. I could go on. And they bring their whole selves into the scene. Your job is to put on your character's clothes, as it were. Let's say you decide to describe the inside of the diner where the scene takes place. The POV character's mood affects how they will see the place, 
Will it feel comfortable? Will the noise make them recoil? Will the smell of cooking bacon make their mouth water? Or will they want to vomit? Note that you're not really describing the diner. You're describing the character using the diner as a vehicle. Here's another example. Every character in the scene has a goal. You have to know what each character wants, but keeping within the rules of POV, your character only knows what they know. They might know the other character's motives, or they might not. They might be correctly reading their facial expressions, or they might not. In just the same way that we walk through our own lives, your POV character walks through a scene, viewing it through their own lens, knowing only what they know, feeling only what they feel, and that's what you need to put on a page. Now, here's your action step. Understand the current state of the POV character for each scene and take full advantage of it. Let every observation and interaction be wholly theirs, which allows you to advance the story and reveal character all at once. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org tips. Yeah, thank you for that, Paul. Uh, now, sir, this is not the first time we've talked about point of view on the podcast mm-hmm. or with other people or with our editors or whatever, but uh, it's always nice to hear you know, a fresh take on this. Uh, some of your thoughts? Yeah, I think this was um, some really good, sharp advice there. I think point of view is one of those things that's like a little bit technical and finicky and sometimes gives writers a hard time, especially when you're first starting out and you have to figure out like, oh, am I head hopping? Is that something that I want to avoid? Um, It's an easy trap to fall into. But I I really like what Paul was saying about how you're basically enacting characterization throughout the scene as you write the action and as you write the setting. You're also, by using a specific point of view, you're helping to flesh out who the character is because you're showing us what he or she notices and um, how, how this character responds to things. And so you don't have to just have blocks of characterization where you describe who the character is. You can tell us about the character through the way that they move through the scene. And this is also a great exercise, too, if you're maybe earlier on in your development of a story and you're trying to figure out your characters or figure out what point of view you want to be in, or maybe you're, you've are you been writing but you're kind of stuck, is you can take the same scene or same moment and write it differently from the points of view of different characters in the story. Um, and sometimes that's a great way to help you start to figure out who the characters are or maybe you've got writer's block at some point, you're stuck in the story and that can kind of give you ideas. Um, so it's, it's a good thing too, to play around with as you're writing. Yeah. And you know, head hopping is what you hear uh, from your editor the first time you don't know what you're doing when you're writing mm-hmm. and you realize that you're describing something that, that uh, your point of view character can't possibly know unless they've got, you know, uh, telepathic uh, abilities, which is my response typically when the editor tells me that I'm head hopping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you just you just didn't know. Oh, this character yeah, has ESP. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you don't you don't know my character deeply enough. This this, this yeah. person's got a lot more abilities than you think. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, and I like the idea that we're talking about a lens because um, it's it, it's the way that you see the story uh, unfold. I mean, the same story told through different points of view will be perceived differently by readers, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times. Um, you know, there are limitations in first person because that character can't know a lot of things that are going on, but that might be an interesting way to do it if you've got psychological suspense and you don't you don't want that character to know who's sneaking up on them, you know, or, or what's going on. But then third person close, I think, is a, also a great way to still stay a little bit in the character's head, 
but be able to jump into the heads of other people. And I, I've enjoyed doing that in the novellas and the novel that I wrote because I just like to kind of get in the head of the what I call the evildoer as well, you know, to kind of mm-hmm. mess around there, to, to which is a little bit harder to do uh, if you're in first person. So a lot of good, you know, and, and I've heard too that when people really want the voice to come out and shine, they will use first person because you can really speak more not only in dialogue but in the thought processes of that character in a way that makes people maybe connect with character so lots of choices and like you say you know jump around and experiment but i've been reading more books and you know one that we're going to feature and i've got an interview for tomorrow that we're going to feature in march that's uh you know i mean really uh interesting use of point of view um jumping around and not telling you who is telling this part of the story until later in the book you know (laughs) (laughs) and and so you know just different things that you can do and i think the more the more talented you get with using point of view and the, the more experimentation you do, then it becomes to how you start bending those rules, right? Bending them in such a way mm-hmm. that, you know, you can maybe not quite head hop, but you can, I've seen really talented authors be able to in the same scene kind of move from one character to the next, but they're really, really good authors, you know, <laughs> to make that happen. But yeah, a lot of times that's hard to do. Yeah, it is. Um, third person is one of those things where it's it can be hard to make it feel seamless, especially if you're moving to the heads of different characters, but within the same scene. And how do you do that and keep it feeling natural? Because if a writer is really good at it, you won't even notice it's happening. Right. Um, it's when you notice it that there's a problem, usually, yeah. unless they're, they're really trying to call attention to it. But um, making that feel seamless can be a real challenge. Yeah, I mean, my advice, if you're, you know, if you hadn't written a whole bunch of books yet is, you know, stick to the same point of view in a scene. Uh, mm-hmm. And it'll be less confusing. And start out the scene so that people know who is telling that scene. I mean, don't wait till the fourth paragraph to let them know, you know, who it is that's, that's telling the story. Because that, then that gets yeah. confusing. If they if they think one person's telling it and then they find out four paragraphs later somebody else is really frustrating. It's like pulling the reader out of the out of the story. So and, and the, the the techniques to do that is just start out in that first topic sentence uh identifying who it is whose head you're in or who's who's talking or whatever you know it's, it's mm-hmm. easy to do sometimes you don't see it though when you're writing a story and you see it when you go back through the revision process so yeah, yeah. a lot of books these days will actually they'll just put the character's name oh, as yeah, yeah. the chapter yeah. title <laughs> or the section heading right um so you don't even have to put it into the writing you'll just right away know whose head you're in and i think that's you have to do that more if you're in first person, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen those where you get two first person narratives and they just put the name of the person. I'm not as big a fan of those as much because you're jumping from one head. It's, there's a little head hopping there. Each chapter you're jumping yeah. into another head. I, I like it yeah. to be a little more uh, to where maybe one primary person is telling the story, but then you see the points of view of other people. But it's all personal, you know. It's And, mm-hmm. and then after you get tired of reading those, you're interested in what you're just talking about there, you know, to try something different. But I think point of view is a great way to to spice up a story and change, uh, you know, how it's told. And uh, oftentimes it's difficult to figure out, uh, you know, what you want to pick to tell it in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I definitely have had that struggle with <laughs> yeah. stories and novels I've worked on for sure. Uh, all right. Well, look, uh, that was a great, uh, great tip. We're going to um, jump next to uh, our community uh, blog post, uh, but before we do, uh, a little bit about how uh, you can uh, be on the podcast if you're an author. 
If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right. Uh, welcome back. We're going to do the uh, uh, community blog post this this week. It's uh, Mary Salisbury. Her title for blog post is How the Love of Reading Can Lead to Publication. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about Mary. Sure. So Mary Salisbury, Salisbury's short fiction essays have been published in Fiction Southeast, The Whitefish Review, Flash Fiction Magazine, Cutthroat, and Cutthroat's Truth to Power. Um, her chapbooks, Come What May and Scarlet Rain Boots, were published by Finishing Line Press, and her poetry has appeared in Calix, Spry Literary Journal, and Wild Roof Journal, and is forthcoming in the MacGuffin and Michi- Michigan Quarterly Review. She's an Oregon Literary Arts Fellowship recipient and a graduate of Pacific University's MFA program, and she lives in Portland, Oregon. Her recent book, Side Effects of Wanting, is her debut short story collection, and it features small-town stories that speak to love and belonging, longing and regret. All right, well... Uh, as I said, the, the title of the blog post is How the Love of Reading Can Lead to Publication. And by the way, if you're a author out there and um, you know, you'd like to do some sort of indirect marketing for your book and you've got a topic you want to write on, uh, submit to our community blog. If you're accepted, we'll put you in the newsletter uh, on the podcast and post your blog to the website. Uh, but uh, here's Mary talking about how the love of reading can lead to publication. How the love of reading can lead to publication. It was by reading short stories and loving the form that led me to writing short stories. I studied from the writers who wrote their stories by reading their work. I read the stories of V.S. Pritchett, Penelope Lively, James Salter, Alice Monroe, Raymond Carver, Anne Enright, and many more. I read and I read, absorbing what each writer was doing, and then I began to write my first short stories. I figured I had nothing to lose. No one was there to tell me that I didn't know how to write or that I needed a degree to do this. I was alone in a room writing, and it felt like fun. I wrote in longhand, filling spiral-bound notebooks with stories. I wrote out full first drafts without censoring myself or stopping to rewrite a passage. It was this freedom to write anything and write with abandon that helped me most. I had nothing to lose, like I said. I simply wanted to try this form and see if I could do it. I returned to the library every week to drop off books and to get more books. I discovered more short story writers. It was the act of reading widely which fueled my desire to write. Once I had a small collection of stories I had written and revised, I began to look around for a safe place to share them. I attended my first writing workshop in 2005 with Tom Jenks of Narrative Magazine. There were about 20 of us sitting around at a long conference table in a room in Seattle, Washington. We shared our stories, we talked about stories, and we discussed the books we had been instructed to read prior to the conference. We each got to have an individual evaluation from Tom at the end of the conference. 
and I left with a strong sense of encouragement and hope. I began to send my stories out to literary journals, and though I received rejections, I sometimes got a nice note about the story and what the editor liked about it. This encouraged me too. I looked into writing programs in my state of Oregon and found a low residency one, which would fit into my work and family life. Going to the Pacific University MFA program gave me time to dedicate to writing and the mentorship of other writers. I slowly began to get work accepted. Many life events stopped me from being able to write along the way, but I kept returning to writing because I needed to write to understand life. Writing for me is a way to figure out what is happening, what it might mean, and why. It has been 20 years since I wrote my first short stories, and this October I had my debut story collection published by Main Street Rag. Those early stories I wrote alone in a room, figuring I had nothing to lose, are in this book, along with the stories I have written more recently. I still love to read short stories and have gathered enough books to make my own little library filled with some of my favorite writers. All right, well, I'm, uh, I like this uh, idea of uh, how reading moves you into writing. What are your thoughts there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think it you can never say it enough that as a writer, you need to be reading and reading consistently and reading um, things that are aspirational for you, you know, writers who you feel like you look up to them and you can learn from them as you're reading. And it's such a great way because you're you're usually not consciously thinking as you're reading about, okay, what lessons can I take away from this? Or how does a writer do this? But you do absorb a lot of it, I think, unconsciously as you're reading. Um, so it's always, you know, a good excuse to read a good book is you're you're getting something out of it at the same time and I also love how she mentioned going to the library I think that's kind of a lost art for a lot of people I know I grew up going to libraries a lot as a kid and then for a long time in my early adulthood I never went and then several years ago I I kind of rediscovered the library and I was like wait why have I not been getting free books (laughs) this whole time this is amazing so definitely take advantage of your local libraries yeah, and I, and I love how she took her love of short stories and turned that into writing short stories. And, and so not only can reading lead to writing, but reading also improves writing. I mean, if mm-hmm. you read the books uh, that you aspire to write, not only are you going to be excited about writing that because you like to read those kinds of books, but you're going to learn from the people who've done it before. And we've got we've talked about the right quote series that's going to come out uh the second book in the series it'll come out in april is about learning to write and they talk you know writers have always talked about you know how they got into it and and this is one way that you know reading led them to writing um Mm -hmm. so um it's great uh great post and um i'm glad that uh you know it also reminds me that uh somebody said well you, you know they were Somebody came up to us and said, you know, I want to be a writer. And they said, well, do you read? And they said, no, I don't, I don't like to read very much. And they said, <laughs> you know, that's like, uh, uh, that's like going to a, to a doctor that doesn't actually like to stu- study medicine, you know. <laughs> yeah, or a chef who doesn't like to eat. <laughs> yeah, a chef who doesn't like to eat, <laughs> what are yeah. You doing? <laughs> so, and uh, one other thing I want to mention that relates back to the point of view totally off topic here, but I, I was watching last night on television an old Star Trek episode. I used to watch those a lot in the, in the 80s and uh, – it was uh, the technology was such that um, when they were recreating this sort of trial-like atmosphere, they had the people 
quote, give their depositions in the computer, and then the computer converted mm-hmm. that into actual scenes of those people doing those things. So it's almost like oh, you wow. could, like if you could tell the story, uh, it would put the story up in front of you. You could watch it and go, no, stop, stop, let's cut mm-hmm. that. You know, saying that'd be a great technique for editing, right? If you, if we had that technology. Yeah. yeah. It's true. You can actually maybe, watch the scene play out. Maybe the AI will get us there someday. That we'll be I think there to... was a Black Mirror episode similar to that, too. Is there? Who knows? We'll yeah. probably be there soon. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But anyway, thanks to uh, Mary for that uh, for that blog post and uh, a reminder that um, for us uh, writers, it's uh, it's always good to be reading. Of course, we don't have that problem, Sarah. We're reading a lot here on the podcast. Oh, yeah. and, reading oh, lots of good stuff. Oh, okay, I think so. All right, we're going to uh, come back... Uh, and do our book recommendations and what's coming next. And we got an elevator pitch too. So uh, right after this uh, message about our newsletter. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts. LeandisWade.com, SarahArcherWrites.com, or SpellboundPublicRelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, now it's time for our book recommendations uh, this week. Uh, first from Story Charlotte blog, Mark West. Uh, he is actually recommending uh, Misha Lazar's book that we uh, we have Misha on the podcast. She co-hosted, wrote along with us uh, in the fall. Uh, her book, Man-Made Constellations, uh, was, was great. We enjoyed that. But here's Mark talking about it. Hello. This is Mark West with the Story Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a new novel called Man-Made Constellations by Charlotte writer Misha Lazara. Regular listeners to the Charlotte Readers podcast will recognize the name of the author, where she was featured on a recent podcast. I've been hearing a lot about Misha and her new novel, so I decided to check it out for myself, and boy, am I impressed. Man-Made Constellations is a road trip novel. It's set against the backdrop of the American landscape and features characters who are thrown together on an extended road trip and in the process They learn about themselves and form a relationship of sorts. I highly recommend Man-Made Constellations. All right, uh, Sarah, what you got for us this week? Yeah, so it's great to hear Misha's book um, presented there as well. But I've been listening to a book on Libro.fm. It's called The Tatami Galaxy, and it's by Tomihiko Marimi. Um, it's about a college student in Kyoto and the structure is kind of interesting. It sort of goes on these loops through time where at the beginning of each school year, the, the main character will join a different extracurricular club. And depending on which one he joins, it changes the trajectory of the year. But each time there end up still being certain similarities and how things play out and certain recurring characters. Um, he has this best friend who's in every version of, of the timeline who has zero redeeming qualities, but ends up being kind of lovable anyway in, in sort of like a, a annoying way. <laughs> Um, the tone is a little bit funny, a little bit kind of quirky and off kilter. There's some fantasy or magical realism elements to it. So it was a really unusual and uh, just fun read. That's great. Well, I've also, um, the book I'm recommending was uh, Libro.fm Listen as well. Um, it's uh, the recent book by Cormac McCarthy. Um, it's actually two books, but I've listened to the first one. I'm halfway through the second one. The, the first one that I listened to is The Passenger. Um 
the follow-up to that is Stella Maris. Um, this is the most complicated <laughs> book <laughs> I think I've read, but with, with snippets of just amazing uh, literature in there. It's, uh, it's kind of part mystery, uh, but, you know, there are times when for like 10 minutes uh, he's talking about the history of physics, and uh, it just kind of goes in lots of different directions. And I'm not going to tell you how, it, how that first book ends because, well, I will tell you this, that, you know, you find out what was really going on in the first book in like the first sentence of the second book. And that's how complicated the first book was. And, uh, but the, the, the main character, um, is a guy named Bobby Western. Uh, uh, they refer to him as Western there. He's a, he's a diver, salvage diver. And like the first chapter, uh, they go down, the planes crashed in the water and they go down and they going to have to bring up the bodies, but they go down first just to count them to see if anybody's alive. And, they count the bodies and they come up and then certain people start pursuing him because he tells them there are like nine bodies and they say, no, there were 10 bodies. You know, he said, no, there were nine. You know, so mm-hmm. where's the missing body? Because the manifest shows that there were 10 people on the plane, not nine. So anyway, a little bit uh, there and then conspiracy kind of gets out of control. But the character, I really like the character. It's just that uh, not only are you dealing with him, but you've got another character who appears to be schizophrenic, um, and her world is very bizarre, with little people visiting her, doing Volvo acts in her bedroom, and a kid called The Kid, who's a guy that has flippers, and uh, just has a, talk about first person and voice, I mean, this guy has a voice, I mean, or, mm-hmm. or being, or whatever it is, but a lot of humor in that part of it, you know, so uh, he, he deals with a lot of topics, he deals with uh, schizophrenia, he deals with uh, you know, the mystery of uh, nuclear fission and the bomb because his dad worked at the Los Alamos Project. So I don't know. Okay, you may hate this book, but you also may love it. It's one of these things that, uh, you know, when you get through, you're going to be scratching your head for a while. And that's why I'm interested to see uh, what Stella Morris is going to do at the end because in this book we're hearing it told through the point of view of the schizophrenic uh, sister who's checked herself into a mental institution, you know. Hmm. I've been wanting to read that set, and I'm definitely more intrigued than ever now after your description. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure places, though, that he took Leonard Elmore's advice about, you know, delete the parts that readers want to skip, skip. you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But other parts are, are fantastic. So anyway. I know that's longer than 60 seconds, but I couldn't do it in 60 seconds. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, we got an elevator pitch here by uh, Dorian Dupree. Uh, uh, listeners, uh, we want you to do this thing. Uh, it's free. Uh, you can go to our website, the contact page, click on the link, and uh, pitch your book in 30 seconds. It's great practice. It's also fun. Let's hear, uh, let's hear how Dorian did it. My name is Dorian Dupree, and I am one of the authors in HeartSpace, real-life stories on loss and renewal. HeartSpace 2 is an inspiring collection of stories about turning loss and grief into growth and healing. From the heartache of losing a loved one to the expanded grief on losing one's entire childhood, culture, birthplace, birth mother, homeland, or homestead, the storytellers share their most devastating losses, the darkness that followed, and their transformative life lessons. 
All proceeds from the sale of the Heart Space Collection benefit the work of Heart to Heart, a nonprofit committed to helping us navigate dying, death, and grief. Yeah, yeah, well done. Um, and we had Dorian on the podcast in the past. Uh, you can go check out our our, our guest list uh, is on the podcast there. Uh, it's alphabetical. You can go down and you can click on these names, including hers, and go listen to the episode, um, or you can scroll through your podcast app and find it as well. So, uh, yeah, great job. Um, hey, let me tell you where we're on social media, and then we're going to come back and tell you what's next. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, Sarah, what's uh, coming in episode 323? Uh, Next time we're going to feature Robert Bathurst, who you might recognize from Downton Abbey. He's an actor and also the audiobook narrator of Louise Penny's latest Inspector Gamache novel, A World of Curiosities, which Publishers Weekly calls a virtuoso 18th novel that blends nuanced characterization with nail-biting suspense. Um, It was a fun interview to get get to talk to him both about the novel and about some of his work behind the scenes too um, we also feature jenny Liu, who is author of enly and the buskin blues which comes out in february 2023 uh, she's sharing her blog post the literary ecosystem at work for an introverted book marketer and we're going to feature a thought-provoking charlotte two-minute tip and elevator pitches and book recommendations and more all right well listeners as always we thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us and uh, hopefully you'll Tune in next week for another episode uh, full of author interviews and uh, tips and more. So until then, uh, read on and write on.